This is The Monthly, a podcast presented by The Pad Project. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode four of The Monthly Podcast. This month, we are going to be focusing on menstruation in prisons. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Chandra Bazelko. I guess now I'm considered um, a period equity activist, but never actually saw myself in that role, mm-hmm. uh, and which I guess I'll, I'll explain as I explain my story. I am a columnist right now. I write um, both freelance and regular pieces on criminal justice and the prison system. My name is Kimberly Haven. I am the director of Reproductive Justice Inside. We are Baltimore-based, but we work nationally on reproductive um, healthcare justice and access for incarcerated and formerly incarcerated women and girls. Amazing. And how did you get to working in this space? What is your story that brought you here? Well, reproductive justice um, is certainly has my heart and soul. Um, Also, anything that has to do with the mass incarceration and conditions of confinement for for women and girls uh, has been a focus of mine for the last decade or so. But everything that I do, whether it's in this space or in larger criminal justice reform spaces, is because of the things that I saw or experienced while I myself was incarcerated or the life experiences of people that um, play a role in informing the work that I do. So it is a broad range of voices and experiences that shape the work. But after my incarceration, I could have gone home and just been a soccer mom and and pretended that uh, prison never happened to me. But I've been a fighter all my life for you know, right is right, wrong is wrong, and we all have a role that we can play. And so prison ignited the advocate within me. I was incarcerated from 20, 2007 to 2014 um, for some nonviolent crimes that I'm actually still fighting. I will actually only get a real hearing on my charges in 2024. That's when it's currently scheduled for. So that would be about 19 years after uh, my arrest. So that that's a good kind of barometer for for listeners to understand how long it takes to fight something in the system, even if it's just your personal charges or what landed you in the situation, you're looking at a couple of decades to like, if you're going to challenge anything, it's going to take that long. So I think that's, like I said, an important barometer, important comparison, because to change things in this system, at least with the courts, there's like a, a mechanism for change, right? You can file papers, you can ask for hearings, you can move things along. Where there isn't such a mechanism, change is gonna take even longer, which is really important when we're talking about things like menstrual equity inside of prisons, um, because there's no mechanism, right? There's no, if you're gonna change something, you're really just gonna have to like stomp your feet and make a mess and really you know, just like cry out and scream out until someone listens. And that's basically what happens in my story is that I was, while I was incarcerated, I was menstruating um, and you know, just needed, pads and tampons every month when I got my period. And it was such a trial to try to get these supplies um, that I was like this, you know, I had never in my life experienced this kind of like, you know, um, obsession, I'll call it an obsession of knowing that my period was coming up and knowing that I needed to prepare and get supplies ahead of time because it wasn't just something that I could either A, go buy or B, um, would just be around. Like, you know, when I'm here at home, I just buy stuff and if I need it, I grab it. It's not that big of a deal. It's not constantly in my mind, but it was a constant thing that I knew I had to either save 
what I was given or that I had to purchase in advance from the commissary, the things that I needed just to menstruate. And then towards the end of my time in prison, I ended up having a cervical polyp, but I didn't know that. I had several examinations with the prison OBGYN and she just said, I don't know why you're bleeding. Maybe it's just stress, which I don't, <laughs> I don't know how many um, you know, medical people we have in the audience, but like stress just doesn't make you bleed constantly. Um, that there's usually a, a physical or medical situation that's going on that's causing that. And she was kept telling me, the doctor kept telling me this, there's nothing wrong, there's nothing wrong. It was only when I got out a couple of months later that my, my own OBGYN told me, you have a cervical polyp. It's about the size of a baby's finger. And I can see it right now. And I don't see how anyone who did an exam on you wouldn't have seen it. It's like waving at me. It's right there. So um, that's a really, you know, stark commentary on the, like the type of medical care that women receive in prison, because it, that, that was a problem that was easily fixed. But the thing is that for that, I would say two years or 18 months uh, of the last part of my sentence, I needed pads and tampons every day. Right. So this wasn't just a weekly, I mean, a monthly challenge where I had to worry about will I have enough when this hits? It was constant. And I mean, I luckily I had a, a job in the prison production kitchen and my supervisors were actually very good to me. They were all men, but they would just give me box, you know, like big bags of pads so that I had sufficient supply um, and I didn't have to worry about it as much. But it was still like if I didn't go to work on a certain day because it was a weekend or something like that and I didn't have what I needed it was became like kind of this scrounge fest or, you know, going to various people's cells and asking them, do you have this? Do you have that? Can I borrow this? And the thing is, it's not, the, it, it's not something that I would ever deny another woman if I had <laughs> these supplies and, and someone asked me in any situation, I would just give it. But because they're so scarce in a prison, you kind of really think like, can I spare this? It's like lending money almost, right? Like, could I, can I go without this? If I never got this back, <laughs> will I be all right at the next time that I need it? And for me, that was the next day. It was going to be a constant, constant thing. So it really got me thinking at, as to like how much of someone's attention, at least in a women's prison, who is dedicated to getting the next quote unquote fix, right? Like you, you, the next supply, your next hit, what the thing that you need and not focused on either rehabilitation or, you know, tending to one's children outside or, you know, connecting with resources that one may need when they leave, like your whole focus goes to what tampon and pad you're going to have to be able to use um, in either tomorrow or next week or next month or whatever. There's so, so much energy gets devoted to that. And why it's so much energy has to be devoted to that is not really necessarily a true scarcity. And I've written about this a lot. It's that there's a power differential, right? So the person that you're getting it from always has more power than you. They have the power to deny you that, that tampon, that pad, whatever it is you're asking for. There's a big problem down in the Tutwiler prison in Alabama, uh, their, their women's prison where guards were insisting that women perform oral sex on them to get a tampon or a pad, that kind of thing. It's a whole um, misogynistic mess of various levels of power and disempowerment. And it all kind of centers in like this little tiny pad or tampon, right? It's all about this little thing, but it's this much larger story beyond it that goes back, you know, centuries of like how we, make, you know, menstruation taboo, a topic that we can't talk about and men and women and their various levels of power and talking about menstruation, what it really is, that kind of thing. So I just think it's very fascinating when you think about it, that we are focused on these little tiny products that tell a much, much larger story that spans literally centuries of history and the entire world, right? So it wasn't just about me in the York Correctional Institution in Niantic, Connecticut, needing a pad or a tampon because I had this undiagnosed polyp. It's really about 
men and women and how we understand our bodies. When did you first realize that there was an issue regarding menstruation within the prison system? Everything was solely based on my own experience. I didn't, I actually didn't know that much about the prison system at all. I really never thought in my whole story that I was actually going to go. That's a combination of things. The, the facts of my case, my own privilege, the, the, my background, I was what they call an unusual inmate because I came from an upper middle class background. I was educated. That's not usually not the typical profile of a woman in prison. Most of them, uh, about 68% of them haven't graduated from high school. Um, they usually come from severely and like criminally impoverished backgrounds where they've gone through years and years of neglect, B both of their like, you know, emotional needs, their medical needs, their educational needs, everything. So this, I was very, I was very unusual. And I actually don't know, looking back, I don't know that I, if I had been attuned to that and known that it was a problem, I don't know how many more resources I would have been able to find when in 2007 that talked about this because it was um, my uh, op-ed that I wrote. And when I look back at it, it was in 2015 and I had just been out like a year. Uh, it pub I published it in the Guardian talking about how, you know, this the lack of sanitation supplies in, in prisons humiliate women. Still, I write this thing and I pitch it in a very non-professional way, I learn now, um, in the middle of the night because I just figured, oh, the, the editor will just open it in the morning and that's really not something you're supposed to do. But she did open it in the middle of the night and she wrote back and said, I'd like to run this, but I, I'm not going to talk to you about it now at 1 a.m. I'll, I'll get back to you in the morning, but don't send this anywhere else. And I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. You know, like I, I, what I didn't understand is that she really saw that this was the first time that someone was going to be very public about um, staining one's underpants and needing, you know, being humiliated by a, a lack of, of tampons and pads and the politics of menstruation. This was something that people really publicly hadn't talked about that much. It's become much more of a, um, a topic that we are comfortable with, or at least, you know, that at least media is willing to approach. But before that, not, not very much at all. It was kind of a, a, like a secret within prison activism, but they didn't really talk about it publicly. Truthfully, I mean, I probably have always been aware of it, um, but I think the over the years, it's gotten worse. Uh, what I really want to kind of stress is that, generally speaking, women and girls who are ensnared in our criminal legal system are correctional afterthoughts. And as the number of, you know, prisons have ex the number of people that are incarcerated in our prisons has virtually exploded, uh, we've become even more of an afterthought. Uh, prisons were not designed for women. Our needs were never, and are still not taken into consideration when um, when prison policies are developed. And so it's gotten progressively worse. And sadly, the number of uh, women and girls that are entering our prison system has exploded. Um, we are now the fastest segment, growing segment of our prison populations. And so if you already have this lack of, uh, of being responsive to somebody's needs, couple that with an explosion in the population, it stands to reason that those needs are going to be even less taken care of. Um, I really got um, hands-on involved with the menstrual hygiene part because I was um, in chemo-induced menopause. 
I had was a breast cancer survivor. Well, I'm still a breast cancer survivor, not a was. I'm still a breast cancer survivor, but I should not have had any sort of bleeding incident. And while I was incarcerated, I had three and they were very significant where I was um, literally hemorrhaging um, for several days. And so I was, you know, again, my apologies to your audience. I know this is kind of squishy, but life is life and this is what it is. And I was bleeding through um, six uh, sanitary napkins at a time. And so I was having a hard time getting the sanitary products because they kept saying, you're in menopause, you don't need these. And okay, yeah, you're bleeding, but well, we can't do anything about that. And so I realized in looking or looking around and talking to people, the things that that women were having to do to meet the most basic of their um, of their hygiene needs. And so you either had to negotiate with an officer, you had to literally beg, um, you had to make your own and I'll put a pin in that part of that story. Um, I also know that women were very adaptive in you know, just trying to survive because you have to do your own laundry. You're given one uniform. So if you have an accident, you have no way of, of cleaning yourself, cleaning your clothes, because certainly you don't have access to laundry if it's not your laundry day. And if you try to wash your clothes off in the shower, someone's going to beat you up. If you wash it in the janitor's sink, well, that's just dirty too. And then you have no way to dry your clothes. I know women would turn down visits with their families and say, don't come see me today. They would turn down the visits with their lawyers, people that were trying to get them out of prison and say, don't come see me today. And the reason for both of those was because they knew that when they walked up to that visiting area, they, you can't take anything into any visit, even if your legal visit, you can only take in your legal papers. And at the end of all of those visits, you're strip searched. So now you have to take off all your clothes, your butterball naked, you have to squat and cough and spread your butt cheeks the whole nine yards. And so now you've got this bloody pad that's now been exposed to the air. There's no sanitary way of disposing of it. There's not a replacement that's given to you. And so now you have to walk back to either your job assignment or to your housing unit and run the risk again of soiling your clothes with no way of taking care of that. Um, and so people would literally turn down visits to the most important visitors that would come see them, like their children, their attorneys. To me, it was mind boggling. So when I found myself in this position, um, I made my own. I became like the tampon queen. It was one of my one of my many side hustles. Um, and I would take these horribly um, inadequate uh, pads that I was able to get and I made my own. I made my own tampons. And as a result of that, and because of uh, how you have to make them when you're on the inside, I ended up with toxic shock syndrome. And on my release, which is why I had the bleeding incidences, and when I came home, I had to have an emergency hysterectomy. I know women were making clothes, I mean, they're making their homemade um, menstrual hygiene products out of their clothes, out of their bed sheets, out of the material that's in their bed, which, oh my God, is just beyond abhorrible. And all of these things put women at risk for infection, for serious reproductive um, health damage, for infertility. And no woman should have to pay, play Russian roulette when you're in the care, custody, and control. And I hate to use correctional language, but if you're in someone's care, custody, and control, they have an obligation to provide the things that you need. These are things that, that are needed and they don't, um, and it, I can't believe we even had to have these conversations. And 
legislators said that to me. Are you kidding? We actually have to have this conversation. This isn't happening. They were appalled. We had bipartisan, overwhelming majority support when we wrote our bill and got it passed. Um, I think the other thing that was um, is really kind of horrific about sort of all of this is that they weaponized menstrual hygiene products. You had to go to an officer if you needed it. And, you know, they could say stand by because they were doing mass movement or they would say, I'll call somebody. And, you know, unless that officer and you had a special relationships or, you know, you could kick it like that with them, you know, generally next shift or something. Well, you can't wait for next shift. And so they took something so basic and so necessary and literally weaponized it against us. And that's how I got involved. That's why I got involved. And that's why this legislation, the fact that we actually have to have legislation to mandate this galls me, but that it is starting to gain more and more traction in states across the country. It's horrible. Um, We, you know, when we started researching for this episode um, and I was just reading so much literature about how the prison system was made by men for men. And it's just, you know, baffles my mind that with the rising number of um, female identifying inmates that nothing's changed. And it seems like so many other things in our country has changed, um, especially regarding gender. And there's been so much movement, but it's so crazy to me that there's just been no movement in the prison system. It's horrifying. So kind of going off of that in prison diaries, I was reading a little bit of it before and um, I, was reading the section where you were talking about how you noticed that a a bunch of inmates would walk around and when pads were getting overused, they would just slide out. And it was something that you just saw. Um, Was that something that like was talked about or is it something that was just like an unspoken? That, That was definitely unspoken. I think you're talking about the time that I was working in that same kitchen where my supervisors were pretty generous towards the end. Um, and a woman, it fell out of her pants and into a kitchen floor where we were cooking food for, you know, actually that would be distributed in, throughout the entire prison system, not just our facility alone. And I had a big boot on because we were working in the kitchen and I put my boot over it so that no one would see it because that's a t- tremendously humiliating experience to have something like that happen. And I told her like this, don't worry, I, I have this. And I think I scared her when I said like, <laughs> Um, you know, like I, this is what just happened and I have my boot over it. You're going to be fine. She was a little bit startled by that, but yeah. So overusing pads uh, or using them more than once was not really something that was discussed openly. It was just understood because it really was considered a disgusting practice, right? You had this old, usually odorous item that you were putting back, like, you know, into your clothing to try to protect you because that's all that you had. So it's, it's also like a complete, um, an act of complete desperation, right? Like, and I think that everybody in there knew that they, we were desperate in some ways, like some more than others, some in different ways, but the the admission that we were literally doing it to ourselves, right? Like <laughs> re-soiling ourselves because we couldn't get these supplies, that was more understood than discussed. So did you ever, like, was there ever any discussion of menstruation amongst inmates or amongst people that you maybe talk to like on a daily basis? Well. Um, I also want to caution you that we politically don't use the word inmate now. <laughs> um, sorry, it's another one of those. Um, I just have to to write that. It's incarcerated individual. Um, so inside it was, you know, we looked out for each other. 
if you needed something and I could get it for you or I had it, you know, we would share it because we were all in the same kind of shared experience together. Um, so that was an easy kind of conversation. Having the conversation with officers, with DOC uh, leadership was much more difficult because it wasn't their problem. It was, you know, you were just the most thing right in front of their face. It really wasn't pressing. We'll get to it. We'll get it to you. And they never realize that it's a problem. They don't realize the um, the lack of dignity that's associated with having to literally say, please, sir, can I have some more? Um, they don't understand the the way that it makes an individual feel when they have to go and say, I, I need more. Can can you get me some? Can you help me? Um, it is a helpless feeling. It is a degrading feeling. It is dehumanizing. It is stigmatizing. It is, you know, everything negative and it shouldn't be that way. You know, the the sanction for breaking a law or being convicted of an offense is prison, not the abuses that are heaped on as a result of your incarceration and not being able to access the very products that you need, that it's not something that happens once in a decade. It's something that happens every single month, like like clockwork, literally, is is something that, you know, just was abhorrent to me that it wasn't taken much more seriously. In conversation with our legislators, I don't know whether they just wanted me to shut up and um, go away because, you know, it was a squishy conversation, particularly the male legislators. But whatever it was that got them to pass my bill, hey, I'm okay with that too. Uh, don't get me wrong. But, you know, I made it a point of making a homemade tampon and holding it up and saying, is this something that you would want your mother, your sister, your daughter, your best friend to put up inside of you? And it was like they couldn't stop staring at it. It was like watching a train wreck. Like they were fascinated by this horrible looking thing that women were fashioning to use to manage their own bodily functions. And so... I mean, on one hand, I, I mean, sometimes shock and awe works. Sometimes it doesn't. In this case, it absolutely worked because there's an assumption that, and not just by legislators, but by the general public, that well, they have everything that they need. No, they don't. You could buy them on commissary, but you would pay street prices. And honestly, I could go into a Walmart and get, you know, for um, eight dollars and forty nine cents. I could get a box of you know forty super plus tampons, but I couldn't buy that quantity on commissary. I would get twenty, and I'd still pay you know eight dollars for them. And that would be great if you have money on your books, if you've got someone sending you money. But if you are indigent, if you are, you know, have an institutional job that pays you ninety cents a day, and you still have to pay for your laundry detergent, you have to pay for your phone calls, your stamps, your writing materials, your soap, your shampoo, you have to pay for everything of your own, then buying tampons off of commissary is a luxury that you can't afford. And so once again, now you're, you know, again, please, sir, can I have some more? And it's that dehumanizing environment that just re-traumatizes people, traumatizes people sometimes for the first time around this issue, but it just creates a unequal and unfair power structure that is unnecessary. The only discussion that I really recall, I'm sure there were side, you know, smaller side ones, but the, like the general um, constant 
discussion is who, who has a pad, who has a tampon, who has it, is someone hoarding them? If so, let's go to their cell and ask them if we can borrow or, or get one or something like that. It was more um, the politics of need that were being discussed and like and, and acquisition, like how do we get this? Or um, so-and-so guard is working now. He's very open, he'll, let just, he'll just open a box and let us take what we want. Or so-and-so guard is working now and he always asks us, did we try to purchase them from the commissary and asks for a receipt? And, and only then will he give us one if we can show that we purchased them and ran out or purchased them and were denied them. So it, there was, that was the kind of uh, discussion of understanding the various you know, forces that acted on you at any given moment in time of to get the, the supplies that you need. Like a lot of times um, guards would only work one in the unit at night, whereas it was either two or three in a unit during the day because people are sleeping and they figure there's less for them to do. And then, so if you were to ask someone on the third shift at night, a guard and say, I need this, they sometimes would say, I'm the only one here, so I can't go do that. Which the thing is that was just patently ridiculous because all they would do is tour every half an hour and then sit and do nothing for the rest of the time. So there's no reason why they could, in fact, if anything, that at night it would be easier. They'd have more time and more opportunity to go get someone what they needed. So there were like, it was, kind of anticipating what excuse was gonna be thrown at you or what kind of negotiation you'd have to go through to get it because there were a lot of things, I've written about this a lot. It's um, this endless negotiation, like, uh, you know, can I have a pad, Mr. So-and-so? Um, didn't I give what you won yesterday? Yeah, but I used it and I, now I need another one. And usually you use more than one a day, but like that, that'll show you their understanding of how this actually works. And, you know, or like, how heavy is your flow? If I gave you two yesterday, how heavy is your flow? Are you gonna need one again to, later on today? That kind of thing. So these, these highly invasive questions that really have nothing to do with the fact of whether you need it or not, or whether you should get it or not, but humiliating. And then there were other times that um, they would, if you would say like, can I get a, a pad? Do you really need it? Yes, I do. Are you about to bleed through your, into your clothes? Yes. Well, then I'm gonna let you bleed. I don't care if you bleed onto the floor. This, these, these kind of, you know, harassing really cruel statements that they would say to women and the thing is once I said it in this you know first article in 2015 in the Guardian there was this flood I mean when I say flood I never gotten responses like I have first there were people who haven't been incarcerated who were just disgusted at the whole idea that people would be denied such a minor product to keep themselves clean and then there were women who were incarcerated and every like it's just the same story all over again it doesn't matter what state what city, what facility, who you were working with. It was constantly this negotiation of like talking about flow, what you need, how many you need, how many you're going to need, how many have you used. Um, I don't care if you bleed through your clothes. I don't care if you bleed on the floor. I don't care if you bleed in your bed. You're going to sit in it and you're, that kind of thing. So um, it, it's it's so universal. And I thought I, mine was maybe a little bit unusual, but it's really not. So it was this, it's this what you have to go through in order to get what you need, it just reinforces the powerlessness that I would say women in prison feel, but also women feel a lot, you know, in a lot of other scenarios, even if they're not incarcerated. So that was what bothered me is that the, the amount of energy that is invested into distribution of these items that on the outside, I never gave a second thought. If you had to assign a monetary value to it, like how many hours were spent negotiating this, you know, like at the guards, you know, hourly wage or whatever. We're talking about millions and millions of dollars that are invested in keeping in keeping these supplies out of the hands of incarcerated women. And it's just, it's the worst business model ever. It's like anyone who really cares about efficiency and getting things done would never allow this to keep going. Like this, it's just a, a complete waste of energy and time.
Did you experience this with female guards as well as male guards or were female guards not present? Female guards were there. They're definitely in the minority. Um, some of them, I would say they were probably the most neutral. Like if they had it, they would just say, take it. Um, and that, or they would just, you know, they, they probably wouldn't get into the flow um, discussion as much as men would, but they weren't as helpful as you might expect. Like for me, if I were a female, like if I have a supply and I know that anyone in my midst needs it, then I'm just like, here, take, you know, like just whatever I can do to help someone who's, I don't care what, what the situation is. Um, they were not like that, I would say, for the most part. There might have been one or two who would do that. But also remember that these people, um, the people who work in prison generally think that they're being treated unfairly themselves. And in many ways, they might be. I can't, like, I haven't lived that experience. So I don't want to say what whether um, people who work in prisons are always treated fairly. That's not really for me. I don't have any expertise on that. What I do know from interacting with them is that they feel very put upon. And so they tend to be resent any extra effort or any extra task that's put on them, even if it is clearly within their job description or what they have to do to keep a functioning and sanitary unit that they're overseeing. So like to say, like, can I get a pad? If someone has to get up and unlock a closet for me to get that, they see that as an imposition on them that they had to get up. So some people call this laziness. I w- I'm not going to go that far. I'll just say like, this is, this is, there is definitely a climate in correctional facilities that if you have to ask someone who works there to do something that they weren't planning on doing that very second that that is that, that you're causing them a problem well what, what used to kill me is how little they really at least appear to understand about how this works like you you don't use the same thing for five days you, you don't that's a, a unsanitary it's disgusting really and um that it's just that's not how menstruation works you don't um reuse tampons like they don't work like that once they've absorbed a certain amount they're not going to absorb a certain, you know, any more liquid. So I feel like the physics and the biology that go along with, with dealing with menstruation were like completely over the heads of a lot of the people that we were dealing with. However, they have to know something, right? Like, you know, a little bit. So a lot of that I also felt was like feigned ignorance, right? Like, I just don't know. And I'm going to put you through these paces for, so you can, I can see how far you're going to go to get what you need. Um, I never heard of in my prison of anyone being required to perform a sex act for supplies, but obviously that happens. But I also know that like just the um, having to answer these questions and stuff like that, they want to see a lot of women in prison have mental illness. So they want to see like if they could break them down or frustrate them or get them to quit asking for the supplies and just go away frustrated, that kind of thing. So it was really, to me, um, a measure of cruelty right? Like they, they wanted to see what reaction they were going to get rather than just giving up the, the supply. Carrie Blakinger, who's a formerly incarcerated journalist, she's at the, the Marshall Project. She described when she was in the New York state system that when she would go to nurses, right? So medically trained people that they should say, can I get some pads? They would make her bring back the used ones to prove that she had used them for menstruation and not something else. <laughs> so she had to bring a bag of used dirty pads back to the to the medical facility in order to get the sim. So she brought back 13, she could get 13 new pads. Like it was like a, a library book, like exchanging them and stuff like that, which is another thing which 
the, this whole idea that, oh, um, if we give them the supplies that they just ask for without any type of limits, it will go to waste, fraud, and abuse. This is the, the argument, like we'll be spending millions and billions on, on, on tampons and pads in prisons if we just allow people to get what they need. And the thing is, there are ways to use a tampon or a pad for a use that it's not really intended for. So like a lot of times people would use um, a tampon as a little like sponge to clean their counter or something like that or a couple of times I saw women use um, maxi pads they would stick them to the to the wall between the wall and the bed if the bed was loose because they're always um, fixed to the wall so that people can't move them and block the door um, if it wasn't entirely stable that would keep the bed from hitting the wall and making a noise while they tossed and turned at night um, and then a lot of times women would use um, the stuffing from a pad to make us they would crochet like a stuffed animal and that was what they would uh, use for the stuffing inside is, is the inside of the pads. The level of that type of use of these things, especially when, they, when they, we couldn't get enough, was pretty minor. Like it was, it was definitely not, not, not enough for anyone to say we shouldn't have just an open box policy where they just open boxes of these things at every shift and then women take what they need without having to interact with staff. Uh, and, and then get more when they need it, that kind of thing. Like no questions asked, don't ask, don't tell, just get what you need. The idea that this is that we're going to lose so much money towards <laughs> these alternate uses is almost a joke to me because yes, I've seen them. I'm not gonna deny that sometimes these things were used for, you know, in ways that unrelated to menstruation, but it maybe costs the prison like $30 a year or something. <laughs> like it's, it's so minor. Like I literally would just be like, here, can I just cover that cost? right now and I don't even have that much money. I'll just pay for that and just let's just keep, like keep that off the table. But this constant thing of, you know, like constantly bringing in the fact that they may be misused or that the women may be misbehaving with these items is it's worse than a red herring, right? Like so a red herring tries to take your attention away from something that is real. This is um it's trying to take your attention away from something that's real but on something that is so manufactured and overblown that it's almost comical, right? So like, you know, like when they're saying, well, how much will this cost? It costs what it costs. And if you're really that concerned, then don't put women in for, you know, low level drug crimes or, you know, like breach of peace or like, don't keep people on a $50 bond. <laughs> when, you know, like when that's really, obviously you didn't think she was that dangerous if she could just post $50 and get out, that kind of thing. So there are other policies that if you really wanna reduce costs, there are tons of ways you can do this in, the criminal justice system, really easy ways, ways that are fair, ways that protect families, children, that kind of thing. But they're really fixated on how many like pads might get misused in, in if they were to just have these, what we, we call uh, open box policies. So it, it's it's a waste of time. And it also is shows you again, how much effort will be directed into keeping these supplies away from women as a, a method of control. It just cements how much control people would really have because it's such a, like, like you said, like a dehumanizing and sort of like shameful or embarrassing thing to have to go and ask for it over and over again and just be turned down. And it, it just shows like this sort of power complex that is very present in the United States prison system. Mm -hmm. um, and we tell our young daughters, this is not, we know when, when a, when a, when a young person starts, gets their period for the first time, we tell them this is nothing to be ashamed of. This is a normal bodily function. And you know, it's, it, it's a beautiful, we even tell our daughters, it's a beautiful thing. Of course, my mother never told me it was a beautiful thing, thank God. But, you know, some mothers do say it's a beautiful thing. And then you go and you get caught up and you're in prison and all of a sudden you're made to feel embarrassed by it. You're ashamed 
a biotic. You can't meet your own needs. And now you have to go beg. You have to go, you know, plead for somebody to get you what you need. Um, it is a huge, like you said, it's a, it's a big power barrier, but it's also um, a power play that is used. And I, I hate to say that, again, the weaponization of menstrual hygiene products, but that's literally what's happened in prisons and continues to happen. 